This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Heritage New Zealand. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Bill Southworth covers the sensational heresy trial 50 years ago of Dunedin theologian Lloyd Gearing. Gregor Campbell tells us of a North American buffalo which roamed Otago. Sarah Gallagher profiles Dr. Emily Cedarberg, the first female medical practitioner in New Zealand. And Gregor Campbell tells us about a shoot-em-up in Princess Street. He has been called the last living heretic. In 1967, the Presbyterian Church held a hearing to decide whether Lloyd Gearing, then a theological professor at Knox College, Dunedin, should stand trial for heresy. It made headlines around the world. Bill Southworth has been researching what led to this dramatic event. Lloyd Gearing grew up in Otago, attended Otago University, and became a Presbyterian minister serving in parishes at Curau in Dunedin. Lloyd said when he first went into the ministry, He wasn't sure what to make of God. He said, The third sermon I ever wrote was, What is God like? I was trying to find out. He eventually became principal of Knox College Theological Hall and held university positions as a scholar of the Old Testament. Little did he realise that his study of theology would lead him into hot water with some in the Presbyterian Church. Many modern theologians who had studied the Christian religion, and particularly the stories in the Bible, had reached the conclusion that the Bible was not inspired by God, but was simply the work of men, men who were subject to the same human prejudices and inaccuracies as all of us. Some of the stories were just contrived metaphors and not actual events. Looking at the lack of real historical evidence, theologians ended up rejecting fundamental beliefs, such as the resurrection of Christ, the concepts of an afterlife, and the existence of a heaven and a hell. The theologians concluded that faith and religion was not based on a system of logical thought. The growth of scientific inquiry and a better understanding of the universe, and particularly the laws of nature, had made it impossible for many in the modern age to have the same certainties about these things as those in the ancient world who, in simpler times, believed in things like magic and miracles. However, despite the decline in the 20th century of conventional ideas of God, many in the pews still clung to the old beliefs and didn't have the advantage of advanced research and scholarship. In 1965, Gehring had signalled his thinking in the Presbyterian Weekly Outlook when he wrote an article on why church reformation was necessary. I pointed out that for the man who stepped into the 20th century with his eyes open, the old distinction between the natural world and the supernatural world is a thing of the past, and that if the church is to continue to ignore this fact, the Christian faith will continue to diminish in its influence in the world at the present alarmingly rapid rate. What particularly upset the evangelicals was the blunt rejection of fundamentalism. I said, the Bible is not literally incapable of being wrong. The Bible is not the word of God in written form. The Bible is not a simple guide setting forth what every Christian in every generation must believe and do. It is a book from the ancient world and must be studied in the light of modern scholarship. In further articles, 
Deering questioned the resurrection of the body of Christ and gave support to another theologian who said that the bones of Christ would be laying somewhere in Palestine. The problem was this. The New Testament writers believed they lived in a three-decker universe consisting of heaven, earth, and the underworld of the dead. Within that framework of belief, to say that Jesus rose from the underworld of the dead and descended into heaven made sense. For us who see ourselves living in a space-time universe, it does not. The historical existence of Christ had been verified by Roman historians, but he was not an embodied God. In 2017, at the age of 99, at the Writers and Readers Conference in Wellington, he was asked by John Campbell where the idea of Christ's resurrection had actually come from. The resurrection is, a, is an, an idea that really started in nature because at spring everything comes to life again and every month the moon dies and comes to life again. So that the idea of resurrection is a idea from nature. Indeed, this was something which later a theologian from the end of the first century from Egypt, he recalled this and said that's where it came from. Uh, but it gradually evolved and then it went to the idea of the resurrection of people, uh, of the race, the Jewish race. Eventually, his writings provoked objections from others in the church, and a group of Presbyterian laymen was formed which held meetings of protest around the country and called for the establishment of another theological college. One meeting in Dunedin was attended by 700 people, but another in Invercargill had to be abandoned when it broke up in disorder. A General Assembly of the Church in 1966 reaffirmed traditional doctrines, and the Church and the controversy simmered down in the meantime. The following year, in 1967, he gave a well-received lecture at Canterbury University, and despite his request that it not be recorded, someone took notes and passed them on. In the lecture, he said the idea of a supernatural heaven, which would be entered into after death, had not arisen until the second or third centuries of the modern era, becoming accepted doctrine in medieval times. He said modern man must accept his mortality and rather find meaning and value in life itself. His critics could not call on the Bible support because the New Testament unambiguously declares only God is immortal. An elder of the Knox Church in Dunedin who suffered a sudden fainting fit in the octagon was carried unconscious to the nearest shop for attention. It was a milliner's shop and on regaining consciousness he found himself surrounded by an array of colourful hats. He concluded he was in heaven and astounded those seeking to help him by blurting out, Good God, Gehring's wrong. Charges of heresy were eventually laid against Professor Gehring and they were heard by the 1967 Presbyterian Assembly held in Christchurch, which was to decide whether a full heresy trial should be proceeded with. The Dunedin Presbytery had expressed its confidence in him, but its Auckland equivalent, which was the centre of Christian conservatism, had other ideas. Bob Wardlaw, a fundamentalist and theologically illiterate layman who passionately believed that what Gehring had said could be disproved by quoting the Bible, was one of his accusers. The other was more formidable. He was the Reverend Bob Blakey, who wanted the Assembly to declare where it stood on the issues to be raised.
more than a thousand people packed into St Paul's Church for the hearing. The charges made front-page headlines around the world. There was even an article in the Times of London, and the whole assembly was lit with television lights during the debate on the charges. After his accusers had finished, Gehring spoke for an hour and a half, defending his theological research and conclusions. When he ended, there was a burst of applause. In conclusion, he had said, It is faith man needs, not past doctrines. These latter only become, like the law, heavy burdens to be borne. Faith has no security, no fixed doctrines, no infallible church, no infallible Bible, no assured revelation. I hope my accusers, along with the whole church, will see their way clear to let go their hold on whatever words, doctrines, and dogmas of the past have given them security. After hearing the charges against Professor Gehring, the Assembly judged that no doctrinal error had been established, dismissed the charges, and declared the case closed. Thus, what had come to be called the heresy trial was never actually held. Gehring left Dunedin and set up a new faculty of religious studies at Victoria University, which developed a reputation for excellence. He remained a prolific writer and lecturer. He was later given a knighthood, with a ranking higher than Colin Mead's, a level of elevation which rather surprised him. He was also appointed a member of the Order of New Zealand, our highest civil award. Today, Sir Lloyd, who is now 105 years of age, interprets God as a bundle of the highest ideas or values, love, justice, honesty and purity, and considers the idea of God to have done more good than evil, while Jesus is a great teacher of wisdom on how to live life to the full. He still attends church in Wellington, one he says that has moved with the times. In his interview with John Campbell, he was asked how he sees the so-called heresy trial today. I was enjoying the whole process. After all, in the end, I said nothing unusual at all. What I said then would seem old hat today. But I was pretty sure of my position, you see. Everything I said had been said by others. It's just that people hadn't kept up with their reading. (laughs) (laughs) That's what one of my friends said at the time. Things have certainly changed remarkably. A dozen years after the dust had settled, the Catholic bishops of New Zealand issued a statement to their people that the story of the ascension of Jesus was now understood as belonging in the category of myth. I am grateful to Sir Lloyd Gehring for his book, Wrestling with God. This is Bill Southworth reporting. Bison have never roamed the range in Otago, but at least one had a brief time here thanks to an Otago farmer. And this report from Gregor Campbell. In the late 1960s, a farmer from Crookston, West Otago, named Richard Cook, had a dream. He wanted a bison. Other New Zealanders had bisons, why not him? The Department of Agriculture had no objection, and there were zoos in the country which had surplus animals. All seemed good. So Cook built a strong bison enclosure on his farm in 1969. The enclosure was duly inspected and approved and Cook waited for a surplus animal to become available. You can imagine Cook's surprise when he opened a letter in January 1970 to read that the department had changed its rules the month before and he could no longer obtain a permit to keep a bison. 
The disappointment must have been all the more because the changed regulations would have been under consideration during the time that Cook had negotiated his permit and built his enclosure. The Director General of Agriculture suggested compensation for Cook, but, as the Ombudsman's report put it, this was not an acceptable conclusion to the complaint, as he was interested not in compensation, but in bison. Cook then obtained a permit to operate a private zoo, but, unfortunately, the permit did not extend to bisons. At least, he could not import one, and there were none available in New Zealand. In 1974, however, he obtained full permission for his heart's desire after petitioning Parliament and the Wellington Zoo offered him a bison on loan. Sadly, Mr Cook's bison did not live long at his Crookston farm. In November 1974, it died of pneumonia and salmonella. It was then that the Christchurch Press revealed the joke. Based on the original 1969 desire and attempt to obtain a bison by Mr. Cook. The bison's name was Tenery. It was Cook's Bicentenary. And I am the duly impressed Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Dr. Emily Cedarberg was the first female medical practitioner in New Zealand, but she first had to overcome prejudice against females entering the profession. This report from Sarah Gallagher. This year marks 150 years since the birth of Dr Emily Hancock Cedarberg McKinnon, the first woman in Aotearoa, New Zealand, to graduate with a medical degree. Emily's father, Franz Cedarberg, was a Jewish settler from Prussia and had been a pioneer in the Otago gold dredging industry in the 1860s. He married his second wife, Irish-born Anna Thompson, in 1867, and their daughter Emily was born on the 17th of February, 1873, in Clyde. The family moved to Dunedin that year and settled on York Place, where Franz, who was an architect and builder, constructed several dwellings. Emily grew up with parents who encouraged her to pursue a career as a doctor. She attended the normal school on Moray Place, Otago Girls High School, and finally University of Otago, where in 1891 she was the first woman enrolled to study medicine at a time of pronounced gender prejudice. Emily is known to have made light of the reactions of her classmates in later years, saying they were quite well-behaved young men, although she said there was one trifling occasion where a few pieces from another dissecting table came in my direction. It must have been an isolating experience, maintaining her composure, not socialising with her colleagues, and carrying a huge sense of responsibility for the entire future of women in medicine. After graduating in 1896, Emily undertook locum work at Seacliff Asylum. This was followed with postgraduate education in Dublin and Berlin, where she studied obstetrics, gynaecology and children's diseases, and then undertook further study in Edinburgh. In 1898, Emily returned to Dunedin, registered as a medical practitioner, and set up her own medical practice in one of her father's York Place houses, where he had arranged modest consulting and waiting rooms. Following the death of her father in 1902, Dr Cedarberg commissioned James Louis Salmond to design her a home and consultancy rooms on York Place early in 1903. He estimated the cost would be over $300,000 in today's money and Cedarberg requested changes to get that cost down as the building was financed with a loan. The final drawings were ready in May and at the end of the month 
the building contract was awarded to Stephen Samuel Aburn. Aburn must have considered the job a good example of his work, as one of his advertisements shows his staff posed outside the building. Built in the Queen Anne style, the bay windows with decorative mouldings and multicoloured glazing, elaborately decorated gable and entranceway, and exposed red brick, a typical of Salmon's style. Originally, the house also featured his signature chimney stacks and a slate roof. There was a separate side entrance and waiting room for patients, the consultancy room, a tea room, and the rest of the house was dedicated to Emily and her household, which comprised her mother, sister Isabella, and brother Frank. At the eastern entrance of the house, which is now closed, led a waiting room for patients, and across the hall was Dr Cedarberg's consulting room, which faced the street. This kept the front door and hall clear for visitors and made use of the corner sitting room where, if it was not time for tea, sherry and biscuits were the favoured refreshments. For the following 20 years, Dr Cedarberg was the sole woman practitioner in Dunedin. During that time, she held several roles, including medical superintendent of St Helens Maternity Hospital, this was the first hospital in the Dominion to have an antenatal clinic. Simultaneously, Dr Cedarberg was the medical officer at, of the Cavisham Industrial School, the anaesthetist at the dental school, and was actively involved in the training of midwives and worked closely with the Plunkett Society. Like Dr Truby King, she was an advocate of controversial theories of eugenics. Yet despite being described as someone who acted and thought according to Victorian principles, Cedarberg shocked her family and a large proportion of Dunedin by having an empathetic view of so-called fallen women whom she often took into her home and helped. Dr Cedarberg was involved in numerous organisations which promoted the rights and health of women and was described as someone who would fight the wrongs of womankind as she would fight for the life of a patient. The many organisations she played a leading role in or helped to found include the New Zealand Society for the Protection of Women and Children, the New Zealand Medical Women's Association, Otago University Women's Association, Federation of University Women, the National Council of Women, Otago Women's Club, and the Otago Pioneer Women's Memorial Association, which saw the successful purchase and adaptation of a building as memorial to Otago's pioneering women. The networks and opportunities that the organisations Dr Cedarberg was involved in creating, running and participating in over decades have had an incalculable value to New Zealand women. She was instrumental in the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act 1869, which targeted women sex workers and those suspected of being sex workers to be subject to medical examination. Cedarberg considered the act an affront to womankind. She campaigned successfully for the raising of the marriage age from 12 to 16 for girls and 14 to 18 for boys, for the inspection of foster homes to prevent fraud and abuse of power. She also advocated for financial support for family men on low wages, which was a precursor to social welfare reform. She further advocated that women have an equal moral right in the case of divorce and equal rights over their own children. Cedarberg further advocated for the establishment of roles for university-educated women in the police and social services to act in protective and preventative roles in society. Following her marriage in 1928 at the age of 55 to James Alexander MacKinnon, the now Dr Cedarberg MacKinnon moved from York Place and didn't return until after her husband's death in 1939.
1954. Dr. Sederberg McKinnon died in Omaru on the 13th of June 1968 at the age of 95. During her lifetime, her skill and dedication to her profession and community service were recognised in life memberships of the New Zealand branch of the British Medical Association and the New Zealand Registered Nurses Association, a King's Jubilee Medal and a CBE. She was an extraordinary woman, both in her career and as a zealous advocate in seeking health and social justice reforms. Her home and consulting rooms on York Place have been nominated as a Category 1 Historic Place in recognition of her significance. This is Sarah Gallagher reporting for Heritage Matters. Princess Street once became the scene for a flurry of shots from a revolver which sent bystanders scurrying for cover. This report from Gregor Campbell. In April 1914, the weekday peace of Dunedin was shattered by gunshots. The special correspondent of the New Zealand Truth was there to describe the scene. On Thursday, 9th inst, an unusual sensation was caused in Princess Street when the barking of several revolver shots echoed loudly along the thoroughfares. Several lamentable little incidents of a ludicrous nature occurred as a consequence, which aggravated tenfold the original cause of all the noise. As the first discharge aroused the pedestrians, some remarkable feats of agility were evinced on all sides. A cop at the far corner threw his optic around a telephone support and evaporated mysteriously in an opposite direction. One dear old lady, heavily overladen with furs, feathers and a facial drop screen of alarming proportions, lunged into a publican's generous binge, introducing thereby a scene of extraordinary endearment. The warmth on the lady's part lasted for some minutes as a second discharge going off from the awful revolver, encouraged her to nestle closer despite the odoriferous expostulations of the prostrate pubbery man. A lugubrious-looking, watery-eyed salvationist ducked behind a tram pole and now and then threw a fearfully woebegone countenance as the gunman, perched beside Marlowe's furniture establishment, blazed away at a tram car bolting up the street. The motorman on this public contraption sat well back and down and with exceptional length of arm managed to propel his charge at a terrible speed. The occupants of the frantic car, young ladies and old ones, were too busy handing round the latest scandal to notice the uncomfortable position of the distraught motorman. As the car covered the position occupied by the lugubrious salvationist, the latter bolted as a sergeant of Bobby's afterwards expressed it, like blue blazers, but despite his superhuman efforts, he slithered on a decomposed apple skin and with a resounding unseemly noise sank on a stank stern foremost. Marvellous escape, he ejaculated as a grinning dustman raised him off the stormwater convenience. Meanwhile, young and old were careering over the street and everyone seemed to be in everyone's way. Even the Bally Street seemed to be decorated by an extra supply of tram poles and telegraph gear. Collisions were frequent and free, and butcher's meat, fruit and Easter eggs strewed the ground as if a gay thunderstorm had despoiled Eugene Field's amapulala tree. A dilapidated specimen of the canine fraternity was gruesomely walking off with a week's supply of butcher's beef 
when he suddenly contracted his razor-like back, dropped the fleck, and emitting most diabolical howls, tore like blue blazes up the Chinese quarters. Whether or not the gunman's bullet had found his vulnerable part, truth can't say, but the canine was evidently affected by the general contagion. To add to the terrible commotion, a budding pressman from one of the day lies blew too suddenly on the scene, hardly realising the existence of the revolver. He soon, however, got a whiff of the powder, and no Indian athlete or Yankee sprinter ever showed a cleaner pair of heels. Why, they seem to be playing a tattoo on his sitting-down accommodation, remarked an expressman. Every journalist is not built to be a war correspondent, and truth must consequently sympathise with the courageous youth. The hero of all the pother was one Bibi, a furniture hand employed by Mr Marlowe, the coming mayor. Bibi cultivated a particular antipathy toward tram cars and informed the arresting boss cop that the brainless folk utilising them were grinning and insulting him continually. In defence of his self-respect and honour, he opened fire, and with what terrible results truth has herewith depicted. Mr Beebe now reposes at Seacliff under the lynx-eyed infantile paralysis entrepreneur Truby King. Truth's rep is very happy in being able to chronicle no real casualties from the campus martius beyond, of course, the poor canine's condition. But whether the greedy brute got the bullet for or aft, or a hobnail in the gullet, Truth is unable to verify. Chief Tech, Paddy Herbert and Tex Hamley and Hall are on the blood trail, and at the time of writing, we're taking Walker Street in a beeline. The Dunedin City Council records show that a George Beebe, occupation upholsterer, was buried in Waitati Cemetery in 1943, aged 63. His last address is recorded as Seacliff. His grave is unmarked. And I am the quiet and retiring Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30am and replayed on the following Sunday at 7pm. There are further replays on the third week of the month, Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. As Aotearoa New Zealand's National Heritage Agency, Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. Support the heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand check out visitheritage.co.nz This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.